Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. And thank you for your patience with our very slight delay. Um, I'm happy to be welcoming you uh, tonight here, and specifically um, to the first in the series of lectures on secularity and values. Um, my name is Effie Fogas. Um, I am a research fellow in the European Institute here at the London School of Economics, and I direct the activities of its newly established Forum on Religion. Um, Tonight, as I said, this is the first in a series on secularity and values, and I hope that you have received this card uh, indicating uh, the next four lectures, which we hope you will attend also here. Um, this is the annual lecture series of the Forum on European Philosophy, Forum for the uh, European Philosophy. And all of the lectures will take place in this room again for the following three Tuesdays. Now, on behalf of the Forum for European Philosophy, it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Mona Siddiqui. Mona is Professor of Islamic Studies and Public Understanding at Glasgow University, and she's the director of its Center for the Study of Islam. She'll be known to many of you for insightful contributions to the BBC Radio 4 series on Thought for the Day. Mona is happy to take questions after her lecture, but for now, we look forward to hearing her speak to the question of, does faith matter in human morality? Thank you. <clears throat> thank you for your introduction, and thank you for your patience. I hadn't quite realized the geographical complexity of the LSE when I came and spent the last 15 minutes trying to find this room, so my apologies. Uh, the title of this lecture, Does Faith Matter for Human Morality?, um, is not some kind of trick question. Uh, for me, I think it's, um, I should put my cards on the table first and say that I'm not speaking here as a philosopher, um, but rather as a believer, as a Muslim, and who believes in the truth and the existence of a divine being. But I'm also increasingly aware of the competing moralities and voices in our public space, and that religion is often viewed not as one other voice, but as an idiosyncratic voice in modern liberal societies, whether on the issue of gender, sexual morality, or medical ethics, just to give a few examples. For me, however, the religious and the secular should not be seen in opposition to each other, as very often they cross each other's boundaries in our most uh, complex of human concerns. And for many believers, modernity is itself a challenge Okay, this one? I'll just shift over there. Okay, that's working, isn't it? Yes. And for many believers, is this, this is obstructing, but never mind, just leave it. <laughs> it's what you listen to that's important, not what you see. Um, and for many believers, modernity is a challenge because, precisely because it de demands keeping alive an interface between the secular and the divine. Just to start off, the April issue of The New Statesman had on its cover belief is back, how religious fundamentalism is once again rising. The title is meant to alarm and contained various interviews with churchmen, as well as a piece by Baroness Warnock. She argued that religious belief is no basis for lawmaking. Using the example of the Human Embryology Bill, which was debated and then concluded last week, she argues, I have no idea how many practicing Roman Catholic MPs there are. But even if they happen to form a majority in the House of Commons and could prevent the passage of the embryology bill, I believe they would have no business to do so 
unless they could find other reasons than their own religious convictions on which to base their opposition. It is the role of legislators to be consequentialists. They mustn't ask, what does my religion teach about the measure, but will society benefit from it in the empirical world? There'll be many who agree with this position. After all, religion shouldn't have any privileged position in society and certainly not be the sole determiner of our public life. But this stance is both presumptive and dismissive. Firstly, it implies that people of faith are one category, as if some monolithic entity, all expressing the same concerns. And secondly, it demands a gap between faith and the individual, that who we are mustn't affect what we think and say in public, that the moral good of society must depend on other truths, not personal religious convictions. And whether we talk about politicians or anyone else serving the public, this premise is problematic. It's one thing to say that the religious convictions mustn't adversely affect the greater good of society, but it's quite another to argue that our lawmakers mustn't exercise their religious conscience and give it any public voice. Lawmaking is not done by an abstract system. It's done by real people with real lives who deal with real dilemmas. But this kind of debate, whether in bioethics, gender, religious freedom, or even the nature of political democracies, has assumed an increased importance in contemporary debates. But what is the backdrop here? Most, uh, in my view, most of these seemingly polarized debates around religious and ethical matters use 9-11 as a backdrop. In my view, 9-11 was not some kind of watershed for our thinking about faith. But the events of that day and the aftermath have pushed religious discourse to the level of political discourse in the Western world, and largely through the sector of the rise of religious fundamentalisms. What September the 11th managed to do was convince many onlookers that religious expression could quite easily be equated with religious fanaticism, and religious fanaticism could have its roots in the interpretation of those very scriptures held sacred by millions. Religion has become a public commodity in the starkest sense of the word, and there appears to be a greater interest in learning how belief colours one's life in all its various aspects. But also an affirmation, however obvious it sounds, that religion is essentially about the way men and women live, and that it's important to find out why men and women live in certain ways and what values they hold on. Scholars of religion have, of course, been saying this for decades, but the difference today is that many of the world's largest faiths have come to a particular junction in the last few years, a junction which demands that religious scholarship engages in public ways with respect to religious discourse and where the believer engages in public debate in rethinking aspects of the faith. In our increasingly diverse societies, religious language is being used as a tool for opening up communication between faiths and cultures as well as attempting to synthesize some kind of mainstream dialogue within a faith. And for many people, the task is no less than a reconstruction. And however much this may seem like an exaggerated claim to make of any faith, the implication is very much that when it is necessary to rethink whole areas of life, this must be viewed as a radical shift of religious consciousness. It is in this sense that belief is back, 
not in the sense that belief had ever disappeared. Contrary to Western European perceptions, there are more believers than unbelievers in the world. But religion is not necessarily seen as a good force for human society. In our political climate, if our political climate has once again opened up relentless interreligious dialogue, a commitment to understand each other's faith, to show tolerance, to show respect, then the rhetoric that has, this is a rhetoric that has been kept, been kept alive since 9-11. But the other rhetoric is that religion is only a private matter. A private matter, a matter for the individual conscience, because religion and belief in God so often lead to moral suffocation and stifle the potential in humans to do good and transform society, not in obedience to a supernatural being, but for the good of man alone. But I say that faith matters because by laying claim to an understanding of God's will, and let me say here that my talk is essentially about theistic faith, namely Islam, we also lay claim to how we should act towards each other. The question is that when our deepest held views come in the way of forging good relations with others, coexisting with people whose views on God, life and society may be very different from our own, what should we do? And what can we do? I once asked a rabbi, how can we be sure that God doesn't, God wants justice, that he wants us to coexist and prosper, that he wants us to cultivate good relations? How do we know that he doesn't want division amongst people, inequalities, even injustice? And his answer was that anything that oppresses cannot be divine in origin. And since then, my own reflection about religion and theology have been based largely on a simple premise that faith is not about proving God's existence, the sterile project of natural theology, but rather, as a Christian scholar put it, faith in God is about mending the world. Even if we concede that much of the contemporary debate about religion and morality is less about personal conscience and more about the place of religion in public life, religion and morality have always been closely intertwined. And our present tensions only point to a discussion that has been going on for thousands of years. Morality is regarded here as a set of customs and habits that shape how we think about how we should live. The term religion is much disputed, and not all uses of the term require reference to a divinity or divinities. But the term used here is that religion is a system of belief and practice that accepts a binding relation to a transcendent being. This does not, however, give us a single essence of religion, since the concepts of divinity are so various, and human relations with divinity are conceived so variously, that no such essence is apparent, even within Western thought. The ancient Greeks, for example, had many intermediate categories between full gods or goddesses and human beings. There were spirits and spiritual beings, like Socrates' mysterious voice. There were heroes who were offspring of one divine parent. There were humans who were deified, like the kings of Sparta. Socrates' problem with the traditional stories about the gods give rise to what is sometimes called the Euthyphro dilemma. Or Euthyphro dilemma. Mm -hmm. If we try to define the holy as what is loved by the gods and goddesses, we will be faced with the question... Is the holy holy because it's loved by the gods, or do they love it because it is holy? Socrates makes it clear that his view is a second. 
But his view is not an objection to tying morality and religion together. He hints at the end of the dialogue that the right way to link them is to see that when we do good, we are serving the gods as well. Socrates also says that our goal is to be as godlike as possible. And since God is in no way and in no manner unjust, but as just as it's possible to be, nothing is more like God than the one amongst us who becomes correspondingly as just as possible. In several dialogues, this thought is connected with a belief in the immortality of the soul. We become like a God by paying attention to the immortal and best part of ourselves. In the monotheistic faith, God and morality are connected, to put it simply, through divine command and covenant. In the covenant and in obedience lie the laws for human good. In Islam, reason and revelation are interdependent. The Quranic verses indicate multiple perspectives about man, his physical nature and his place in creation and his relationship with God. Firstly, man's creation is not a quiet affair. Rather announced to the angels as a turning point in the destiny of the earth itself. The essential premise of worship is not that God gains anything by human obedience, but that man realizes his ultimate goals only through recognition and sovereignty of God. Thus, despite theological speculation on the essence of God, his descriptions such as the most just, the most loving, the most wanted, all reflect a loving and just God. Verses such as God loves those who are good to others and God loves those who put their trust in him imply that God will draw nearer to man when man places complete trust in God's infinite mercy and when human beings behave with justice and mercy towards each other. In other words, the relationship between man and God and man and man must essentially be an ethical one. And the prophetic hadith, none of you truly believes until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. But is faith alone in promoting this golden rule? Such empathetic prescriptions also dominate the Darwinian perspective that man's survival lies largely on his high degree of cooperation and mutual aid. Despite the presence of the selfish gene, it's this very gene that made altruism essential in the DNA of man's evolutionary biology. Michael Roos, a philosopher of science from the University of Guelph, writes, The position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and any deeper meaning is illusory. As a result of sociobiological pressures, there has evolved amongst human beings a sort of herd morality, which functions well in the perpetuation of our species in the struggle for survival. Here, the humanist perspective is alone, also one which stresses acting rightly is about promotion of human well-being. That human beings are intrinsically social beings, and have the intelligence and the discipline to be altruistic and cooperative. Nurture good and generous social morals which work for the welfare of the whole society. In his book, The Moral Sense, modern philosopher James Wilson argues that there are ethical inclinations that are common to almost 
um, all of us, and that most of us try to keep society's laws out of higher concerns than merely a fear of retribution. And Einstein himself complained in the world as I see it that ethical behaviour should be based effectively on sympathy, education and social ties. No religious, religious basis is necessary. Man would indeed be in a poor way if he had to be restrained by fear of punishment and hope of reward after death. But I think it's misleading to think that it's primarily the fear of divine retribution which keeps the faithful obedient, and that it's only the promise of heaven which keeps us believing. I think that if only things were that simple. Let me make clear here that I'm not here arguing about the history of rational or empirical proofs of religion. So the moderns, to the modern skeptic, at best, we can be persuasive and compelling, but not conclusive and final. As Shabir Akhtar says in his recent book, The Quran and the Secular Minds, nature was once thought to be rationally intelligible to the scientist who professionally probed its mysteries because God was conceptualized in an, as an architect, morally committed to maintaining the integrity of his creative style. The direction was downwards from the deity to empirical nature. The reasoning was good if one already believed in the existence of God. Today, religious apologists reverse the direction of thought. A hidden sustaining intelligence, namely God, must exist because nature is rationally intelligible. But nature's intelligibility to us need not require a transcendent agent acting purposefully inside her. To use a Sufi metaphor of the woman's veil, God is veiled in nature. But for the non-believer, why should God be veiled in nature? Why, good, why should all the signs of nature point to a transcendent being? For the believer, this understanding reflects an optimistic epistemology. It gives us suggestive, not coercive signs of God. And if the truth is veiled, it nevertheless is potentially manifest to those who seek with sincerity. Thus for the skeptic, the natural world including man is what it is with no pointers to a transcendent. For the believer, the natural world is not just a reflection of the transcendent, but one whose dignified beauty and tyranny humbles man to his own place in the cosmos. Do you not see how God has subjected to you the night and the day? The sun and the moon and the stars too are subject for you by his behest. Indeed in this are signs for those who understand. Transcendent religion can lead to individual prosperity and provide parameters of moral behavior because I think belief in the transcendent enables a dignified humanism. That religion, far from humiliating our nature, can enable us to realize our full moral potential. That Christian and Muslim sentiments, such as no man is a believer until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself, are not passing options, but transformative necessities, which must lie at the very basis of human flourishing. Why? Because belief in God makes us morally accountable for our actions. The notion of Ihsan in Islam, to know that if, even if you cannot see him, to know that he can see you, presupposes that divine justice is the highest arbiter. The theistic hypothesis is that God holds all persons morally accountable for their actions. Evil and wrong will be punished, and God, good will ultimately triumph over evil. That the universe we live in, despite all the chaos, is a moral universe after all. 
Despite the inequities of this life, in the end, the scales of God's justice will be balanced. Thus the moral choices we make in this life are infused with an eternal significance. We can with consistency make moral choices which run contrary to our self-interest and even undertake acts of extreme self-sacrifice, knowing that such decisions are not empty and ultimately meaningless gestures. Rather, our moral lives have a paramount significance. By contrast, if God doesn't exist and faith has no place, then what is the foundation for moral values? More particularly, what is the basis for the value of human beings? If God doesn't exist, then it's difficult to see any reason to think that human beings are special and that their morality is objectively true. Moreover, why think that we have any moral obligation to do anything? Who or what imposes any moral duties upon us? Richard Taylor, an eminent ethicist, writes, In the modern age, more or less repudiating the idea of a divine lawgiver, has nevertheless tried to retain the idea of moral right and wrong, not noticing that in casting God aside, they have also abolished the conditions of meaningfulness for moral right and wrong as well. He concludes, Contemporary writers on ethics who blithely discourse upon moral right and wrong and moral obligation without any reference to religion are really just weaving intellectual webs from the air, which amounts to saying that they discourse without meaning. Can we recognize the existence of objective moral values without reference to God? The theist will typically maintain that a person need not believe in God in order to recognize, say, that we should love our children, but rather, as a humanist philosopher, Paul Kurtz puts it, the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns this ontological foundation. If they are neither derived from God nor anchored in some transcendent ground, are they purely ephemeral? Haas points out, because of its incoherence and internal consistency, sorry, coherence and internal consistency, the Nazi ethic could not be discredited from within. Only from a transcendent vantage point which stands above relativistic sociocultural customs could such a critique be launched. But in the absence of God, it is precisely such a vantage point that we lack. One rabbi who was imprisoned at Auschwitz said that it was though all the Ten Commandments had been reversed, thou shalt kill, thou shalt lie, and thou shalt steal. Mankind has never seen such hell. And yet in a real sense, if naturalism is true, our world is Auschwitz. There is no good and evil no right and wrong, and objective moral values don't exist. But a common counterclaim very often made by the non-believer is that religion has not only been responsible for huge conflicts and wars throughout centuries, even one example in Europe are the wars of the Protestant Reformation, in which Europe was torn apart, burnt and plundered for almost two centuries, that religion has led to huge inequities in wealth and land, its imperialist cultures have become more divisive than uniting, that it has led to all forms of apartheid. A religion like Islam is a cause of gender inequalities, oppressive governments, and denial of human rights, such as freedom of religion. All of this is undeniably a dimension of religion. And yet religion also has the resources to reconcile where there is hostility and to give respect where there is humiliation. And for many people, religion has been sustained in the end 
as the only real hope we have. Even today, when many religious communities are also encouraging fundamentalist theologies, readings of scripture which are often intolerant or indifferent to other views, where the spectre of more wars of religion loom in the distance, people continue to believe in God and the power of omniscient and loving transcendent being. It isn't that we have to believe, rather that only by belief in this power can man be truly transformed. And one could, of course, argue that faith in God is different from the shackles of religion. And to a certain point, I agree. The turning away from formalized religion, from official structures of religion, and religious authority may be worrying for some churches. It's nothing new. But neither has it eclipsed man's belief in an all-loving God. Accepting the primacy of the human and natural world is modern, if we trace modernity as beginning for the thinkers of the 18th century. But even today, with so much emphasis on secular approaches to all aspects of life, science and technology have not come up with an alternative morality, nor do they fill all the gaps of human yearning. Faith is not about a closed book. It is a constant dialogue between God and man. The Quranic discourse is firmly rooted in God's multiple acts of revelation throughout history and man's choice in accepting or rejecting the signs. God does not coerce man to believe, but it is an extension of God's mercy and justice that God has sent prophets and books to different communities as an invitation to understand him, but most of all to worship him. Quranic rules are both deontological and teleological, There are principles and admonitions, rules and exhortations. And while they may be rooted at times in concrete earthly values, they always point to a higher moral order. For each one of you, we have appointed a law in an open way. If God had so willed, he would have made you all one community. But he has not done so, so that he may test you. So compete in goodness. To God shall you all return. Thus, obedience to God is understood on several levels in Islam. The one who does not worship God in this life is deaf, dumb, and blind. The one who refuses to accept the salvific message of monotheism is in darkness. And the one who mocks God will be mocked by God. And whether man has bowed to gratitude or denial, what is without doubt is that man's own limbs will testify to the kind of life lived. The essential premise of worship is not that God gains anything by human obedience, but that man realizes ultimate goals through recognition of the divine. For those who claim that morality is possible without religion, without the required belief in God, I don't disagree. Religion does not have a monopoly on human morality. To use Alexander Pope's phrase, the proper study of man is man. But then to believe that God doesn't exist and thus there is no moral accountability, would be quite literally demoralizing. But then we should have to believe that our moral choices are ultimately insignificant, since both our fate and that of the universe will be the same regardless of what we do. By demoralization, I mean a deterioration of moral motivation. It's hard to do the right thing when that means sacrificing one's own self-interest, and to resist temptation to do wrong when desire is strong and the belief that ultimately it doesn't matter what you choose to do, um, what you choose 
or do is apt to sap one's moral strength and to undermine one's moral life. I quote, having to regard it as very likely that the history of the universe will not be good on the whole, no matter what one does, seems to apt seems to induce a cynical sense of futility about the moral life, undermining one's moral resolve and one's interest in moral considerations. By contrast, there is nothing so likely to strengthen the moral life as the belief that one will be held accountable for one's actions and that one's choices do make a difference in bringing about the good. A further contention is that religion boasts moral clarity on a wide range of issues, when in reality, human choices, um, human choices um, brought about by the gift of human freedom create messy situations where there are no absolutes. But this is untrue. Religions have always lived with moral ambiguity on a wide range of issues. And the extreme elements which insist on moral binaries in most religions have never prospered because they have been unable to accommodate human weakness, human desire, and human vulnerability. Faith recognises that the virtuous life is a steep climb. The straight path is a constant challenge to our baser instincts. But the moral impulse on its own is not enough for human prosperity and morality. It is not enough as the ultimate check on moral conscience and human conscience. Virtue for the sake of virtue does not direct man to a higher consciousness. I just want to give two examples. Charity, or zakat in Islam, is not good just because it helps those who are poor or destitute. It is good because it enables the wealthy to transform himself with the understanding that wealth comes with responsibilities. The accumulation of wealth is not the final goal of our existence, but makes demands on our own conscience and our sense of being. Secondly, science and medicine have come a long way in prolonging life through successful surgery and transplants. And most of us accept that helping another through donation is a good thing, a life-for-life philosophy. But organ transplant touches on many of the deepest issues around bioethics. While for some it may seem misguided, if not morally inconceivable, that all of society is not prepared to ameliorate the suffering of others, there are those who fear that this increasing pressure risks devaluing human life itself by treating the human body as a commodity which loses its use indeed its value after death. Most faiths and cultures hold on to the intrinsic value of the human being and the human body even after death. The dead are not some public resource to be used for the welfare of the living. Funeral rites are part of the human adaptation to death and grief is about the abrupt brokenness of human relationships. The dead become a point of reflection about the afterlife, the possibility of another world, the hope of new life. Organ donation is currently regarded as a gift, not an obligation. Through this gift, many people have and will continue to help others through their sheer selflessness. But this is charity at its most sublime. And yet, while medical science may progress leaps and bounds in years to come, to a point when all this discussion may seem even quaint, human beings will continue to live with both the predicament of human suffering and the spirit of human hope. And our most recent concern is with ecology. In Islam, human relations with God are conceptualized in the framework of a servant to master. It is, in fact, one of the first questions asked by God. 
And when your Lord extracted you from the children of Adam, from their spinal cord, their entire progeny, am I not your Lord? The Lord God asked. And they replied, no doubt you are, and we bear witness. A Muslim scholar writes, so powerful is this narrative that humanity in the very principle of its being has testified to the majesty of God. In other words, human nature is essentially theomorphic. And I would say that the restlessness that many of us find as part of human nature for faith would be essentially about that, the longing for something that is beyond, beyond us and beyond this world. Human creation, alienation and destiny are all dependent on man's unique relationship to God. Man who is weak is asked by, asked by God to be his representative on earth. Man who is free to choose must live the moral revealed life. And finally, man who is mortal must prepare for his final destiny with God. The necessary corollary of this relationship is the concept of free will and personal freedom, which allows man to make choices. Human freedom is man's biggest gift, not because animals and other life forms are not free, but because human freedom comes with risks and is aligned with human accountability. The exercising of this freedom is intrinsic in the very obligation of stewardship. The Quran tells us that God offered stewardship um, to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, but they refused out of fear because the obligation was so big. And man in his foolishness accepted it because man is foolish and, and, and ignorant. But I wonder, what is this trust? Is it the challenge of freely responding to God? Or is it the duty of establishing some kind of social, political, and moral order? In either case, the conceptual framework is one of some form of stewardship. In accepting this noble task, both man and God enter a covenantal relationship, and both man and God take a great risk. But it's only by taking this risk that the potential to do good can be exercised. And finally, in the story of Adam's creation and his eating from the tree of knowledge, Adam's first act of, his first act of freedom is an act of disobedience. Practically every religion, culture and philosophical tradition has its own story of how humans eventually became estranged from their gods or a bountiful nature. But the Quran distinguishes between humanity's loss of a certain state and human loss as our earthly existential paradigm. Man's first slip leads to his expulsion from paradise. But the earth is not cursed territory, nor is it punishment. It is to be man's dwelling place. The earth is also sacred territory. The cycle and rhythm of nature are also the signs of God. Man's deliverance from loss to success follows in divine guidance. Taken as a whole, Iblis's fall is not Adam's fall, but rather, as a poet-philosopher Muhammad Iqbal said, man's rise from a primitive state of instinctive appetite to the conscious possession of a free self, capable of doubt and disobedience. Man does not suffer moral depravity, but wakes from the dream of nature. If man truly searches for God, he remains humbled. Indeed, Satan's pact with God that he be allowed to remain on earth to lure man away from God until the day of judgment raises a fundamental question, why does God grant Satan this wish? 
And I think it's because God takes a risk in man. God shows immense faith in man. Very often, evil in the Quran is not concerned as much with ontological deficiencies in man as it is with exemplifying the ways in which man rejects God through disbelief in prophets, earthly signs, or through the pursuit of earthly pleasures, greed, and miserliness. Evil leads to fruitful, fruitlessness in action, but good always leads to human prosperity. Good and evil are part of the same home because they are part of the same trial. And my last um, paragraph. It's man's destiny that he be caught in the triangle of his covenant with God and Satan's pact with God, a triangle which breaks only in the next life. Until then, for believers at least, enjoining what is right and forbidding what is wrong is man's destiny. The only way to self-perfection and the good of others is to find and hold on to the sacred in the profane, the sublime in the ridiculous, and the divine in the ordinary. Thank you. Thank you, Mona, for a very stimulating talk. Um, there is a traveling mic for questions. Uh, I would ask you, I'd be very grateful if you would be brief in asking your questions. Um, I would also ask your patience with my um, abusing my position to start off the question time by asking Mona, first saying I found extremely interesting your offering of similarities and differences between a secular scientific perspective and religious perspectives on morality. But I wonder, is there any place in your thinking for differences between different faith groups' attitudes towards morality? And for example, uh, a more Roman Catholic perspective focusing on acts or other some Protestant perspectives focusing on the role of faith. So um, this has serious implications for the relationship between morality and religion. And I wonder if, if this is an important aspect of your thinking at all, the difference between faith groups. The reason I started with Baroness Warnock's um, perspective is precisely because most of the time when we hear about religion in public life, it's usually to do with either Islam or Roman Catholicism. And Islam is usually about ethics, and Roman Catholicism is about bioethics. Um, I think that um, within, there are huge differences of bioethics between, if I just take the example of the Roman Catholic faith and Islam, which I think is hidden largely from the public because the public tends to block all religion into one entity, that all religious voices must be against abortion, they must all be against um, contraception, they must all be against all the recent discussions we've had about the embryology bill. And I think that's absolutely um, erroneous. And I would also like to add that, just by the way you phrase that question, the scientific secular approach and the religious approach, you know, religion and, science, uh, religion and secularism are not at opposite ends. They are two different ways of public discourse. And I think that some of the fear we have is about if we give religious voices too much of a public platform, they will change all the progress that we've made in life. And that, I think, is not only being disingenuous to the diversity of religious voices, but I think it also paints a very polarized and probably very unrealistic picture of the kinds of conversations that are already taking place. And just finally, the earliest Muslim or 
any um, um, theologians who are also scientists, um, were asking the same questions. They were just asking the same questions in different ways. Um, And just to use Islam as an example, the early scholars who were scientists were practicing people. It was precisely because they were practicing believers that they wanted to know answers to certain things. Um, So I think what I would hope that we try and get away from is always polarizing religion and secularism as opposite ends of the spectrum. Thank you. Uh, The gentleman in the back, in the dark blue suit up there. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I mean, uh, my presence here is, uh, I thought the question was, this, this lecture was to answer the question, whether there could be morality without faith. Um, I think this question is an important one. And it is important because if we were to say that faith is, is necessary for morality, then we have, well, different faiths. There will be order of hierarchy of faiths. Some faiths are more true to the uh, morality. And we will be, we'll end up in a, in, a, in a very divisive world. So I think we should um, attempt this question seriously, whether morality is possible without faith. Um, my own thinking would be that it should be possible. And I think some of our greatest moralists have been uh, have, had, have had no faith. Um, and that some of the most momentous and heinous crimes have been committed in the name of faith and religion. Thank you. I did say that morality is possible several times in the lecture without faith. I suppose I was only trying to say that coming from a faith perspective, what can faith add to the dimension of morals? And of course faith, and I also said that, that religion has, which uh, one of the accusations against religions, all religions, is that religious people have abused religion for the sake of their own economic, territorial, uh, personal gain. But I would argue that if it has those aspects in it, it also has resources for overturning the bad, for overturning evil. And that's a conscious decision that people of faith have to make. What are the resources of our faith that we can put to the good of the world, not for the perpetuation or the agenda of a particular faith? Gentlemen here in the middle. Listening to your um, opening remarks about uh, your view of the place of religion in society, I felt that you must... uh, wonder what your view would be about the BBC's policy, apparently, of giving uh, God or the various gods a monopoly in the thought for the day slot. Uh, Is that, do you think, because the BBC don't think atheists or agnostics are not capable of thinking? Um, I'd welcome your your observations about this. You're not one of those people who has written on the comments pages, have you, of thought for the day? Right, okay, well, you'll find your answer there because... Okay, all right, thanks for telling me that. Um, I think the BBC is um, very conscious that this is a huge concern, not just by the feedback it gets for the day, but the fact that this is a very privileged spot and why should it only go to faith. The rationale that they put forward is that the slot was developed 
as a faith slot, not just as a thought slot. If it was just a thought slot, then it would be opened up. Um, I have to be honest and say that I would rather listen to a good thought than just a faith thought, but then I don't want my position taken away, so I have to keep fighting the faith corner as well. But I think that's their rationale. And I think that it's absolutely just to ask, why can we not have more spots, slots for good thoughts rather than just faith perspectives? Um, the lady in um, I wanted to ask you about your phrase, dignified humanism, um, because I like the, the end of your paper very much when you started talking about the embryology of I'd quite like to hear a bit more about that. But I was a bit perturbed by dignified humanism. Um, and it was arresting partially because your own delivery in the paper was very dignified and your account of the civic function of religion had a certain dignity to it. But I wondered whether what we, we, we should be thinking about rather than a dignified humanism or a dignified Islam is about an undignified humanism and it's precisely that we should be cultivating and thinking about, we should be thinking about, I mean, I'm thinking about material bodies and about embodiment and practices of faith and that isn't absolutely alien to Islam. Um, I'm thinking that, um, I'm sort of trying to connect two things together which is that Islam has a certain distaste for the body and that's one of the, one of the most problematic things for us at the Sorry, moment. I didn't catch the last bit, what you were saying Islam is... Um, Islam has a certain distaste for the body or there's a certain conception that Islam has a distaste for the body so we have issues about the veil and we have issues about young men who think bodies are sacrificable and suicidal and I wondered whether one of the ways we might start to recoup an idea of a civic Islam is um, Islam that is interested in a practicing body so things like the pilgrimage and the prayer and various other things Islam is absolutely embodied and I wonder whether actually we need to go at this question of Islam's civic function in a different way, precisely an undignified humanism and an undignified Islam that's interested in viable bodies and isn't interested in the kind of dignified idea of the law. Um, That's the question. Right. Um, If I haven't understood you correctly, then please stop me. Um, I think on the one hand, and I will just talk about Islam here, there is an insistence that man in order to be near God, this is my understanding, it's how we act towards each other. God doesn't gain anything but by our obedience. God is already complete. Um, but how do we act in a way that might please God? And I think that's when I say that the relationship between man and God and man and man is an ethical one. It is by our actions that we can transform society. However, in terms of examples such as has Islam led to oppression of, say, within gender roles or within patriarchal systems, um, or has it allowed people not to realize their full dignity? I think there are many Muslim societies that unfortunately do create such contexts. I'm not going to say the simplicity, this isn't Islam, this is just Muslims. I'm going, what I feel very much is that as believers you have to make a conscious decision even if it takes you outside the norm of traditional thought on many subjects 
that what I am doing, is it working for the better of society? What are my relations with other men and women? Is it about Islam as an abstract ethic or is it about concrete actions, things I say, actions I do, relationships I foster? And I think that's what I mean by the dignified humanism, that we have the resources that can allow people to think like that. But I think most Muslim cultures, and I would say at least those that are becoming more entrenched in diaspora communities, are so afraid of letting go of traditional perspectives on so many issues that that doesn't arise as a question. That Islam becomes more about what's in here and the image I'm projecting, my devotion to God, rather than the ethical relationships we have to foster with each other. And I think that you can't, you can't live a full life when you are living an outside human relationship with all sorts of people. The gentleman here in the striped vest had a question. Thank you. Uh, just as you were explaining on how uh, morality is possible without God, uh, I was just wondering that it might be another dimension that would be also interesting to explore, but I don't know how to do it properly, so that's why I'm asking you that if it's possible to have faith without God, and my question is because I was thinking that faith is not only provides uh, sort of a human accountability in moral terms, but also adds some other things to the human experience, which is it's an exercise of, of becoming selfless or at least transcending our body limits and our and our, the logic of, of survival and all these things, and probably participating in something larger. The exercise of faith does that, probably just like arts do as well sometimes, uh, transcending our immediate condition. So I, I thought that maybe faith without God, purely as an exercise of transcending the self, it's something that is possible. Uh, so what would you have faith in then? What is it that you're having faith in? Well, whatever helps you to think that being something different to only yourself uh, and not only a mammal or being beyond or, or, or uh, being more than your actual physical limits constrain you to be. Um, and that could be many things, of course, believing in, in a supernatural world as much as believing in a, a code of norms that comes from above uh, as the possibility of, of monsters or fictional worlds or parallel universes or actually believing that you can transform yourself into a different person, maybe. All of those things are exercises of selflessness uh, that I think share something with religion as well. Uh, and that's a dimension that I, I think it's very interesting and quite secular as well, but, but interesting because humanism and religion share loads in common in that particular point. Okay, thank you. gentleman in the back left corner. I um, have two questions. Well, one's a complex question. Pushing aside all the extreme religious fundamentalist events in history of the last 2,000 years or so of whatever religion, assuming those don't count, from a philosophical point of view, i.e. a person that believes in tolerance, compassion, understanding, and a certain sense of charity. 
how can one talk to a fundamentalist without becoming yourself a fundamentalist? I.e., how can one sustain a conversation about tolerance, compassion, charity, and understanding understanding the difference, understanding difference, you know, difference, without the conversation collapsing into extreme violence? Have you come across any th- thoughts or any writings or any authors that have tried to approach that subject? Um, I have students, um, like I'm sure most of us in the academic world, who don't want to be challenged in any way. Um, they're not Muslim students. They are Muslim students don't go to secular institutions to learn Islam. But I have students from different faith backgrounds who are, who I would call fundamentalists in one sense, that the literal truth of the word is their world. And they don't want to be challenged in any way, and they get very defensive and very angry if you say to them that this is a place to question. Um, if I just use that example, because I don't think in my experience I've ever talked to a fundamentalist who's verged onto violence as a, as, a breakdown, as a result of a breakdown of communication. But I think that you can only do what you can do and hope that... It doesn't matter whether nine out of ten people that you've talked to, your words have fallen onto deaf ears, that even if the tenth person listens or changes or amends their attitude in a more dignified way, you've done some good. Um, And so therefore, whether it's a classroom setting or whether it's a public lecture or whether it's a radio broadcast or whether it's something I've written, I think that it's not about will I transform the world or will I change people's thinking um, in one go, but it's actually about the trickle effect, the cumulative effect that you say and do that eventually I think does make a difference. Gentlemen, you to the left. To my left. The uh, topic of this talk is, uh, does faith matter for human morality? Now, you seem to have answered in the affirmative a more particular question, which is, does faith have a positive impact on human morality? If faith was a new phenomenon, like a 21st century phenomenon, we would have no choice but to discuss it theoretically in the way that you discuss it now. But faith has been around for a long time. And so there is another avenue, which is to explore empirically the correlation between faith and, and morality. Now, we have a very rich history to look at. We can look at uh, how faith is correlated with morality at the individual level, societal level, historically, and across societies and communities nowadays. It seems to me, and you might have a different perspective, that there is no correlation between faith and morality empirically. And if there hasn't been a correlation like that in the past or in the present, what makes you think that there will be correlation like that going forward? What do you mean by there's no correlation between, empirically between faith and morality? Um, you would expect if faith is positively impacting human morality that um, societies where faith plays a larger role would be more moral than societies with less faith. For example, um, Western European societies, clearly religious faith nowadays is a, it plays a smaller role than it did historically or, it, or than it does in the United States or in many other countries around the world. Given that, 
there is no, that's the kind of positive correlation that I would expect to find. And since I don't find it, why, you know, what, what makes you feel that it, it is the case? But I, just, just to clarify the question, are you, are you saying that in Western societies where faith has a diminished role, these are more moral societies? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that because you can easily find examples of secular but isn't societies. Isn't that what you're implying? No, I'm saying there is no correlation. It okay. can be either way. You can right. have secular society, arguably, so, uh, Nazi Germany was a secular society that were less moral. You can find more moral secular societies, arguably current Western European societies are more moral than the standards that existed hundreds of years ago when everybody was uh, you know, religious. But if there is no correlation, I'm not saying there is a negative correlation necessarily, but if there is no correlation now and there was no correlation historically, why should we believe that going forward faith will play a positive role in human morality? I, I'm just slightly puzzled as to how you can prove there was no correlation. I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting a proof here. And if you feel that, again, historically or currently around the world, there is a positive correlation in the sense that societies where religion mm -hmm. is more important are more moral than, let's say, Western European sure. society which, where religions play a much smaller role, then I'd like to hear that too. I think, I mean, all I'm, well, at least that's what I thought I was trying to say. All I'm trying to say in this is that I think for those who have belief, um, faith, and who are very much aware that faith gets a very bad press, a lot of the times for the right reasons in today's society, faith also has the resources to transcend all the damage it does, all the bad it does, all the inequities it causes. And I think it's very difficult for people who don't have faith to look into another's life and say, well, um, what good are you doing that is coming from your faith? Um, but it's only when you believe that you realize that, yes, you have resources for both good and bad. And I don't hide that. But I think we have to make a conscious decision. And I keep coming back to that. That true faith means that we are constantly being humbled by our own. Um, the fact that we create our own inequities. The fact that we are not being able to create the right moral world. But that doesn't mean that you let go of faith. You keep, you keep working at it. Um, and I think we do see some results. It may be very tiny results, but if it can lead to good, absolutely it can also lead to bad. And that is what we're seeing with right-wing fundamentalisms. Absolutely. Lady, here against the wall. First of all, I really wanted to say I really appreciated your talk. and. Um, I also had a question in terms of the evolution of religion because, you know, as you were talking about moral values, my sense is also that moral values do evolve as culture evolves. And, you know, related to what the gentleman said there, you mm -hmm. know, I could actually understand when you said that maybe there is no such thing as faith, but maybe we do want to become more selfless people. So it's in a way because... My experience is that I don't necessarily think of a belief in a God out there, but just in the kind of, because I think that's also where science and religion comes together, where there is a sacred uh, force that has compelled us, you know, to evolve. And that in a way, that in and of itself is God. So mm -hmm. I was just wondering how you see also 
because how I some you know sometimes I wish that also some of the re- very traditional religions like Christianity and Islam could also evolve because we we are moving very fast mm-hmm. and we're becoming such a multicultural society as well. How do we work? How do we create moral values that unify us? You know beyond the cultures that we're in. I think it it would be wrong to think that faiths haven't evolved because I think things that don't evolve die. So I think in some ways, whatever we think about the world's large faiths, we have to be slightly taken aback by the fact that they have maintained themselves and sustained themselves, not through force of culture and habits and morals, but because people want to believe. And people in the end have not found an alternative to holding on, of course, believers, holding on to some sense of the sacred. Now, you could say, yes, but does that have to come with all the trappings that bind people, that that oppress people, that don't allow people to breathe? I think absolutely they do come with those trappings, but those trappings, for me, are not sacred. Um, Now, perhaps one of the issues that we're facing today when we look at the rise of a more conservative kind of religion right across at least the Semitic traditions is that has liberal religion actually failed? The fact that we went through the last 30, 40 years allowing people to question, allowing people to push the parameters of their own faith and yet what we're finding and I see this even in only 10 years in students, people want to push the boundaries less and less. They want conviction, they want simple answers to the most complex questions. And I sometimes wonder that, you know, has the liberalism of the last 30, 40 years produced the fundamentalisms of today? And I don't have an answer to that. It's just a question I keep posing myself. Where are we going wrong in creating a new generation of very conservative, a very conservative kind of religion that may talk about commonalities, but it doesn't express it in the way it lives? Um, so yes I mean that's a fear I have I don't however think that at least in Western Europe that what is happening between faith is a life or death situation I mean talking about faith and commonalities here is a privilege it's a luxury, we live good safe lives but where it is a matter of life and death in more volatile situations that's exactly why people who live privileged luxurious lives have to stay engaged in order to keep that momentum alive. Because when you're living in the volatile context, all you're concerned about is the preservation of your life at any cost. Um, so in a way, what the conversations we have in the West are really important, even though I don't think they're absolutely necessary in the West, but they are really important. The gentleman at the back... One of the earlier questioners mentioned the privileged position of religion on the BBC. I think that's quite a small thing compared with the privileges that religion has in the rest of the British establishment. You know, bishops and other religious leaders in the House of Lords, for example, the Queen's religious situation, um, the establishment of the Church of England and so on. So we do live in a a semi-theocracy, I would suggest. But it's not nearly as bad as the theocracy in a lot of other countries, many of them Islamic countries where, for example, apostasy is a capital offence, which is totally, 
absolutely without any moral value at all, I would say. Um, recently, two or three weeks ago, a new organization came into being that I was interested to hear about. It's called British Muslims for Secular Democracy. I expect you've heard of them. I'd be interested to hear what your opinion is of that organization. If I hear one more group emerging in London, screen, um, I think there are so many groups of British Muslims, this British Muslim that, that are, some of them I'm sure are genuine. I don't know what the group's remit is, apart from the word, I suppose the word secular democracy gives a lot away. But um, because Islam is so much in the headlines at the moment, I have to say this honestly, I think a lot of political capital is also being made out of the fact that Islam is the faith under the spotlight. And so more and more groups are emerging as the real Islam, the alternative voice, the secular, democratic, pluralistic Islam. Whether they deliver, I don't know. But, you know, I think all good relationships are local, individual. It doesn't matter how many groups you have that are emerging. If the individual that you meet is not open and receptive, then groups are groups. They come and go. Take a follow-up question then, yes. Okay. As far as I understand it, the group I mentioned are not trying to establish a secular form of Islam. They have believers of Sunni, Shia, all sorts no, of Islamic not. believers, but they believe that it's best to live in a state where one is free to worship any religion or no religion. Well, and, and that's what they're pushing for. Absolutely. And I'd like your views on that. But that's very easy to do in, in, in the UK, where that's part of the social fabric of society that people have the right to choose. The real issues, the real places where these are issues are actually in those Muslim countries. And what we should be seeing more of is people who are contesting religious freedom, gender inequalities. And these, I mean, these things are happening. They may be happening very quietly within NGOs, within individual groups. But I think that it's one thing to say, well, is there any work being done on this? There is. It's another to then kind of react to that when you hear the occasional news headline which says that, you know, in such and such a country, so-and-so is now under the death penalty for apostatizing. As recently as the case in Malaysia where the woman wanted to convert to Christianity and have a name change on the passport, and the Malaysian um, authorities ruled against it. That is a classic example of where individual religious freedom is denied. For political gain, not necessarily for religious reasons, for political gain and for political authority. And I think that what we're finding is, unfortunately, that most of the more, if I can use the word, liberal voices are not being able to carry out or live out their aspirations for a more secular Islam in these countries. They're leaving these countries and they're speaking from different contexts. So the change that needs to be made within these countries is taking place at a much lower speed. Um, but in the West, despite I think all you hear, most Muslims know they have no, I mean they have no um, right to contest or react to somebody who decides to change their faith. However unpalatable and culturally unacceptable it might be that that person is living under the law of this land. And this is why I keep saying that in the end, the changes that come about will have to come about through the constant pressure and voices coming from the West where people are still allowed to think and express really. 
question in the back, the gentleman in the blue shirt. No, no, no. No, this is Sorry. <laughs> Hi, um, I just wanted to say uh, one of the points that you kind of made in your talk was that um, without sort of religion there's no higher calling and there's no appeal to kind of dignified morality. What I was sort of questioning was um, the sort of the, what is the actual difference between biological truths, for example, that inform values versus religious ones that inform values. So, for example, the parents who at parents' evening uh, blame their child doing well at school on their genes versus their child doing bad at school on their teaching. Um, so it's a sort of nature-nurture kind of debate that it boils down to where you can have a sort of society made me do it, which is the religion made me do it, versus the, my genes made me do it. So you know, there's a sort of whole idea of a biological morality with reciprocal altruism, game theory, for example, and there's lots of different other ones as well. Um, and also just a sort of comment to the gentleman down there. I was thinking, when you're talking about correlation between religiousness and morality, I was wondering, can you sort of make a correlation like that? Because you have to sort of break down your categories. So is there a religion that equals morality, or do you have to break it down into Islam, Christianity, or even further, or even right down to the individual himself? Um, and can you make a correlation between me being moral as a, a sort of secularist, and then me becoming religious, and how moral I become as a result of that? Maybe that's sort of an answer. So what was your... Um, I'm just trying to see what your question was. Um, no, I mean, I think it would be disingenuous to say that a lot of us who are born in a faith don't do certain things. I mean, are not aware that we are doing certain things because our faith tells us to. Absolutely. I don't think that is the same as saying, however, that faith doesn't allow you to question and evaluate that what you are doing is it morally right? I'm, I'm, because I don't think that all faith prescriptions are morally right. All I'm saying is that faith has the resources, or the way they've been understood to be morally right. Faith has the resources to allow you to question. Um, even if that means taking risks, even if that means ending somewhere where you don't want to end up. But I think, you know, and just going back to Islam, um, seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave is a, a risky business. Do I want to question and question to a point where I feel I have questioned too much and I have no conviction? Or perhaps through questioning and questioning am I going to get a better place where I do have a deeper understanding of what really is the moral question here? Not necessarily just what I was brought up to believe. A lady here had a question on black top. I don't quite know where to start. I think my voice is going to be very different from everybody else's. I can't believe that everybody is so calm and quiet about this subject. You, you yourself, Mona, you, you, you said things about religion having an effect on gender roles. And so on. Gender roles, half the population on the planet. I mean, it's not just a little thing. It's a huge um, phenomenon. Um, anyway, can I just maybe try and be specific because I'm, I'm really feeling very emotional about this and perhaps as various people have said things um, and the last speaker talked about being, uh, becoming religious and becoming better or whichever it was I was brought up to be religious, I was very <coughs> um, I adhered to, to my religious 
three steps, absolutely, as I understand it, according to the, you know, the tenets. I was a Catholic, and certain things are mortal sins, even though Sherry Blair doesn't seem to know that. Um, and so that's my, that's my position. I took a very, very difficult moral, ethical decision to leave the church on ethical grounds, um, which was to do with, with uh, birth control. Um, so that's just my background. And I really believe that I have carried on questioning, and I, I hope that I question till the moment I'm dying, because I want to find truth about everything in the world. Um, and as for the idea of questioning too much and having no conviction, well, for me, I, I do have a deeper understanding of everything I've thought about, I think. But particularly, um, I'm particularly interested in ethical issues and, you know, how we live our lives. Could I just ask you one thing here? You, you said, if I understood you, that religion, you privilege religion over secularism because it's morally, we are morally accountable. Is no, that right? I, I said that religion doesn't have a privileged voice at all. Okay, well, I'm probably just not expressing it back to you properly. Um, I don't hear very well in this ear. Um, but, but you did say that the good thing about religion is that it's morally accountable. It makes us morally Amazing. accountable. It can, well, yes. Well, I, I, I don't see how this is any different from just a social construct because as far as I can see, just quickly thinking here, is that... Um, Moral accountability happens either in our own conscience or would you say after death? I mean, is it God that gives the moral accountability after death? Is that? Yeah. Would, right, so neither of those are evidence to anybody else. I mean, we know what goes on in our mind, but we don't know what anybody else, happen, what happens in their mind, whether they are sorry for things or not. We might observe their behavior change. Um, but it, it does seem... You know, I find it quite strange that, that, that you can't see it. it. It's a social construct that we've decided, or, or people, religion, whatever, has decided that moral accountability is the thing, and yet there's no evidence of it other than human behaviour, which doesn't actually need to, ha- doesn't need to be any other being apart from us humans for that to happen. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, can I just throw a couple of things out? I'm sorry, but if I get boring, please start clapping loudly. Because um, you, you triggered off a few things. You mentioned the sacred. Now, I don't know how you would define the sacred. When I, I'm sorry, this keeps going. Fine. When I was religious, obviously, I thought I knew what sacred was. It was incense and lovely echoes in the church and whatever. And, you know, it was all very emotional. Um, but to me, I think the sacred is purely and simply the respect, the awe, the dignity, the wonder, the reverence, all the other words we can come up with, the dignity with which we hold each other and the planet and everything on the planet. Um, Now whether you would, I don't know if that would be anything like your definition of the sacred, I imagine you would say they were sacred because God created them, which is what I used to think. But I think the intrinsic value of everything is so incredible that that is sufficient for me to respect it. I don't understand where the universe came from. I don't understand how flower can be like it is. But I know what it does to me. I know how, I, how transcendent my experience and my response to these things can be. 
Sorry, if I don't want I to wondering? interrupt you, but I do want to give Mona a, ta- a chance to okay. uh, react and respond to all of your comments Sorry. thus far. <laughs> one, one more in her comment. When you said it's, in Europe it's not life and death, I think actually it is. Because if, 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 if your religion is talking about, as a woman, how your fertility is governed, I think that's very much a matter of life and death. And secondly, if we support organized religions here in Europe, which then go to other parts of the world where people are not so free to think, I think we impose a lot of oppressive religious things on other people. Thank you for your contribution. Um, Well, thank you for your anger. But I didn't see much anger there. No, 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 no. I I mean, all the points you raise are, if they didn't come out on the paper, precisely what I think, that religion is not about conviction that I have all the truths. It is about a humility and a questioning. It, may, it is about a humility and a questioning. But they do exist together. So, would you just give Mona a chance to respond think, properly? Yeah, thank you. If you, yes, if, could you ask it afterwards, please? I think that if you look at any faith and look at even the early theologies and philosophies of any faith, they were all about questions. If you are saying that today's faith, where people are so, so entrenched in their thinking that they have all the truths, for me that is not true faith. Okay? For me that is the opposite of humility. That is verging onto arrogance. And yes, of course there are people like that, but there are people, there are fun- secularists who are fundamentalists as well. So it's not about that faith and questioning don't go together. It's about are people ready to have conversations that are less about triumphalism and more about the very respect you refer to. And I think that what you're saying about what you see as sacred is very laudable. I'm sure that a person of faith would have no disagreement with you the way you see the sacred as well. Not, but, and, and I, j- just to give an example, this year I had... uh, 11 honour students in a class 10 of whom were from Roman Catholic backgrounds and all 10 are no longer believers these are young women of 19, 20, 21 and the only word they used was all I heard when I was growing up was you can't do this, you can't do that it was a culture of oppression that I am not denying it doesn't happen in, in faith cultures of course it happens in faith cultures What I'm trying to say is that despite all of that, the reason why people want, or people who are believers want to stay connected to a transcendent is because in the end, for a lot of people, that is the only hope they have. Now you may say, oh, but there's no empirical evidence of that. There's no criteria for saying that one should stay. But what other criteria can you use other than what people feel themselves? If people feel that in God there is hope, or in any faith, there is hope for them. Then, no, not, no, 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 people don't, people are, when they are adults, can choose to believe or not believe. But why do you loop back in? Why do you loop back in? No, no, I, I did say at the beginning, I'm speaking from a faith perspective, but I'm saying even those who don't have to believe because they weren't brought up in a faith, 
I'm talking about those who decide who choose to believe. For those people, it is important because in the end, they don't find that an alternative morality can give them hope. I can't argue for the empirical proof of religion. I'm not arguing that. I'm not even arguing for the empirical proof of God. I'm just saying that you have to understand why is it that people choose to believe. And if it seems absurd to those who don't believe in God, it also seems absurd to those who do believe in God that you choose to live in a world without belief in the transcendent. Such as... Can you can do the question, Kenny. Could you bring the microphone here? And this will be the last question because we're running out of time. And well, yes, good evening. Um, you, you, the, the main thing that uh, I drew from your, from your talk was this element of presumption. And, you know, if we go back to human antiquity, um, it's part of the human consciousness to ask questions. And uh, if we go back thousands of years, um, we didn't have the resources to find answers to those questions. So to some extent we had to uh, invent them. But what, what seems to me is that most religions now ignore the fact that we're in the 21st century and that many of the fundamental questions have in fact been answered and they need fine-tuning, of course, and there are some elements and extensions to those questions that still uh, need, need further investigation. But some of the elemental aspects of our existence are matters of fact now, and we don't, we don't need to, to make presumptions. But what is a presumption that we're making? Well, I understood from what you were saying that um, in order to have to be a moralistic individual, um, you really need to have a faith in a supernatural being. No, I, well, I didn't actually say that. Well, I, I I, I'm not saying that you said yeah. that, but okay. I think that was certainly my understanding of what you were implying. Well, the, the title of this lecture was Does Faith Matter? Not Faith Matters to Human Morality. And, and what I was trying to say constantly was that for some people, it doesn't. And I don't think that just because one doesn't have a faith, one isn't moral. I'm not saying that at all. And I said this, the lecture was peppered with that. All I'm saying is that for those who do decide to have faith, this is why they choose to have faith. And this is how they are morally, or how they could be morally directed. I'm not arguing that faith... Morality is impossible without faith. So what extra dimension does faith add for these people? That was my real concern. And I don't really have the answers. Um, and as you say, you know, I can't go, come out of the loop because I am a believer myself. But if you look at, you know, we're talking about empirical statistics, one of the questions that comes to my mind all the time is that in a world where we do have increasing resources, and if you say that so many of our earlier questions have been answered, where we don't live in structures where faith is imposed on us, for, for the large majority of us, not for everyone, why is it that still most people continue to believe in God? I don't think it's just because it's imposed on them. No, I think that part of, part of our evolution 
part of the way that we've evolved in the way that we have is because we have this inquiring instinctiveness to be inquiring and if you don't have the resources to answer those inquiries then there's inventiveness but my the simplistic point I'm trying to make is that we have we've arrived now in the 21st century and we have actually now provided ourselves with the resources to answer those fundamental questions. Thank you very much. Uh, do you have a last word, Mona, before we... I just want to say, yes. from my perspective, if I understand you correctly, we're, asked, we're still asking those same questions. Despite all the resources, despite all the inquiries, the fundamental questions are still there. Monique, you've been very kind to uh, engage so actively with all of these uh, questions. I would like for all of you to join me in thanking Mona for her presentation.